0: Hello, everyone. Hi, it's an honor to be here. Um, this is Maria Ressa, she's a personal hero of mine. She's the founder of Philippine news site, The Rappler. The Rappler was founded in... Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, it was a great success, and... Uh, It reached new audiences with innovative and qualitative journalism. This all um, ended, this success story ended two years ago. That was when Rodrigo Duterte was elected as president of the Philippines, helped by uh, really aggressive populist rhetoric and an aggressive and not truth-based, always truth-based social media campaign. Since then, about 20,000 people have died in the Philippines in the drug wars. W- in the drug wars. Uh, this is a war waged by the government uh, indiscriminately killing people without due process. Many of the victims are children and teenagers. The Rappler reported about all this because that is what journalists do. Since then, Maria Ressa and her colleagues live under constant death threats, because in the eyes of Rodrigo Duterte, the president, no opposition is tolerated in the Philippines. And I think it's important to notice that independent journalism, you might think of the Philippines as a poor country far away where things are very different from here, but independent journalism has had a strong standing in the Philippines for a long time. It has been seen as the um, counterweight to corrupt politicians. But this is also changing uh, in the last year. With the uh, attacks and the uh, cyber uh, bullying by President Duterte, not only um, do Maria Ressa and her colleagues live with, the co- with con- con- constant death threats, their work is also um, questioned by the public. And Maria Ressa told me the last years, I've fought a war on two fronts, against Duterte and the state propaganda um, on one hand, but also on the other hand against Facebook, because Facebook um, did give rapper its fast growth in the beginning of the enterprise, but it is not now capable of taking responsibility for the hate uh, and the rage that is spread on the platform. And Maria Ressa said, this company is like a digital colonial power, sweeping in, making money, and breaking things along the way. I used to be an optimist about the internet and social media. I have lived my whole life in working in politics and journalism. I used to think that social media, internet in general, and social media specifically would help take down old institutions, give voice to new, um, to new groups of people, find, would help us to find new ways of collaborating with readers. Um, I thought that this was a force for, for good. Last year I spent, I had the opportunity to spend a year at Harvard as a Nieman Fellow studying journalism and tech. I spent that year talking to I came with a research project, I wanted to study how right-wing extremism fringe in the Swedish um, media infrastructure influenced traditional media. But I came there and I realized this project is too small, we need to put this in context. So I spent a year talking to the world's leading thinkers on internet, social media, but also um, on populism and uh, what we need to build democracy. One of the people I talked to was Darren Ashimulu. He is a world-leading economist at M- MIT, one of the world's most influential voices on what builds on democracy and institutions. He used to have a fundamentally optimistic picture of a world where more states are moving towards democracy. The key factor to progress, according to Ashimulu, is not luck, it's not culture, It's actually man-made political and economic institutions. But now, he said, when I talked to him last spring, he doesn't believe that anymore. He said, we forgot about something. People like me, who studied this, we forgot about the soft underbelly of democracy. Until the last year's populist and nationalist uprisings in countries like Turkey, Hungary, and the US, Ashimoglu believed that civil society and mass media would be able to warn citizens in already democratic countries if authoritarian politicians' forces tried to take control. He doesn't believe this anymore. He said, what we didn't take into account is that an autocratic politician can, in this day and age, in this information infrastructure that we live with now, can undermine the institutions of democracy with with the help of the media, just like Rodrigo Duterte did in the Philippines. Where does all this rage come from? I guess that this is the question I have been asking myself the last years, Um, my fundamental question, so to speak. In my former job as uh, political editor-in-chief of Swedish daily newspaper Aftonbladet, I could feel in a very concrete way uh, on my skin, so to speak, how the levels of hatred and aggression has been growing the last years. Year by year, the level of threats and aggression and hate just grew exponentially, dramatically. I'm also an economist by training and... My instinct is always to look for answers in the economy, in disrupted labour markets, in globalisation, the um, elephant chart that we saw uh, in the the introduction, exploding inequalities, people being left behind. I do think that that's an important part of the story of our time. But um, at the same time, the story just didn't add up. Last year, I travelled a lot in in Eastern Europe. This was after coming home from, from the US. I went to Hungary, to Poland, the Czech Republic. These are countries with high growth and low unemployment. These are countries that are economically expanding, where people get more opportunities, better education. Despite that, in these countries, you would see the same levels of rage the same explosive media and political climate as in the US, as in the Philippines, as in Turkey, and yes, as uh, in Sweden to some extent. And going back to economics, you simply cannot explain the anti-Semitic campaigns against George Soros in Hungary with economic despair. So what is happening? It's complex, as we've talked about. But I want to talk about the information infrastructure that we live with now, and the internet, and social media. It is often said in the public debate that the public debate is polarized, that the people on the political right and the political left are, they are said to withdraw into two different echo chambers, filter bubbles, where they become, so to speak, angry mirror images of each other. At Harvard, I closely followed a research project looking at the intersection of social and traditional media in the US election of 2016. The result shows that what happened is not polarization in the sense that something is happening equally much on both sides. What has happened is that the right, the extreme right, has become more extreme and withdrawn into an insulated media ecosystem susceptible to propaganda and disinformation. Traditional media accountability mechanisms like fact-checking has no influence in this in this sphere. It is on the far right today that the political on the political spectrum that the logic of the internet and social media works best. This, uh, as opposed to what I believed and what many others believed um, ten years ago. Partly because these opinions that are being expressed now. Um, the last decades have been too radical, too racist, too extreme, to be part of the mainstream. But also because the logic of the network makes it it possible for a relatively small number of people to make a big impact if they are passionate and good at linking to each other. It also turned out in this research project, and I think that this is a crucial point when understanding where we are today, that, this part of the media landscape, this propaganda bubble on the far, far right had a disproportionate and unproportionate uh, impact on traditional media. Traditional media got their, to a large extent, their angles um, and their reporting from social media, from Twitter, from Facebook, they, find, they, f- they found the fodder for their reporting there, and they were thinking something's happening here, there's a lot of energy in this space, we need to write about this. Immigration and Islam became the two most widely covered issues of the US election campaign uh, when traditional media, the big news outlets, wrote about Donald Trump. This has no correspondence in the real world, this is not what people were actually worrying about, this was not corresponding to a refugee crisis or something happening in the, in the, in the economy. This was the mirror image of the propaganda um, environment on the far right. Not many years ago, um, many of us thought that the worst thing social media would lead to was to create a new um, environment dominated by silly things like BuzzFeed's uh, Watermelon Challenge. I don't know if you remember this. This seems like, you know, happy and uh, happy days when you think about it now. Uh, instead, we see what seems to be working best is stuff like this. Are we a stupid nation or what? I should have um, given you a trigger warning. Um, This is a YouTube video created by extreme Trump supporters. It falsely, of course, claims uh, that the state of Michigan allows Muslim immigrants welfare checks for up to four wives. It originated on a YouTube channel called Clean TV. But interestingly, even more interestingly, This video was picked up and distributed by Russian propaganda channels in the US election in 2016. The internet in the last 10 years has gone from being this dream of collaborative utopia to an arena of fierce competition harvesting, attention harvesting, competition for attention harvesting. To sell better ads, you need more and more data about your customers. The best way to get data about your customers is to keep them engaged on your platforms. What is it that keeps people engaged on your platforms? It's content that drives engagement and strong emotions. The best and easiest way to get people really engaged is to make them angry, to make them upset. The problem At the core of this is that the stronger you react to the content you see on Facebook or YouTube, the more likely you are to remain on the platform and the more money your attention makes for these companies. In this way, the tech giant's choice of business model created the economic incentives now driving outrage, disinformation and political instability. And in this way, the logic of the attention economy overlaps with political forces with a stated aim of undermining liberal democracy. So, what to do about all this? Well, I think what we've talked about this morning, and it's been interesting, uh, was interesting to listen to both Johanna and Indy is I think we need to think about the future as something open, something that's possible to change. We don't have to live with this exact information infrastructure. We can construct it differently. Ten years ago, no one could foresee that this would happen. Who knows what the future will look like, what the world will look like in ten years from now. But I do think that more people need to get involved in this discussion. We cannot leave our democratic infrastructure in the hands of two monopolistic, profit maximizing companies who don't, I mean, it's not, they care about the making money fundamentally, they, and I, I'm sure they have good intentions, but this is just not working. I work for a media company, that, and the rise of the platforms is, is an existential threat to what we do. In my new job, part of this is to raise awareness of the public how the public discourse is constructed today, to think about what needs to be done to guarantee the survival of journalism. But change and pressure needs to come on many levels. We need a much broader discussion about this, from consumers, from citizens, from politicians. I do believe, and maybe this is my background in economics, that we need to understand how the economics plays into this, the logic of the attention economy, the business models. I am going to, to go back to where we started and end with Maria Ressa. And as Johanna said, this is election week and I cannot get away from the thought and the feeling that what is happening to her, of course, is a, I mean, she lives in a much more fierce and dangerous place, but it's the same logic. Our democracy, too, and our journalism, too, um, is under pressure from right-wing populists undermining democracy and the irresponsibility of the platform companies constructing our public discourse. I will end with a, maybe on a cheesy note, uh, but these are serious times, and um, this quote, I think, is extra appropriate maybe this week. She said to me, and this comes from a woman who, well, struggles for survival literally and in in every way. She said about her own reaction to the threats directed towards her and her colleagues in the Philippines, you don't really know who you are until you're forced to defend it. And I think this is a good uh, mantra for all of us these days. Thank you.